The sermon text reading is Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for a burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last Wednesday was, uh, this past Wednesday, and of course started this Lenten season that Christian reminded us of. And we come to a passage which I, I think Mark intended in some ways to be a portal into this last section of Mark. And it is a perfect alignment here with what Lent is actually about and why. And I want to read a quote from, uh, from Robert Weber who captures what is the Lenten season about, and as I'm going to suggest also this passage, when he says this, we too easily forget our maker and redeemer, replacing God with things and ambition. Lent is the season that calls us back to God, back to basics, back to the spiritual realities of life. It calls us to put to death the sin and the indifference we have in our hearts toward God and our fellow persons, and it beckons us to enter once again into the joy of the Lord, the joy of a new life born out of a death to the old life. Two things I want you to hold on to from that quote for the next 30 minutes. One is there's something that we, we give up. And what Weber says is we give up indifference. We were talking in our prayer time this morning at 9 a.m. For those of you who are there, you remember this. But Christian was talking about functional atheism indifference towards God. We're going to see that here in this passage. But then, did you notice that, that what Weber said is it's not a, a season just where we're like glum and kind of staring at the ground and saying, waiting for it to be over. Let's, no, joy. Quite the opposite of glumness is joy. That Lent should be filled as a season filled with joy as well. And it's appropriate. This is a a new section. When we start chapter 14 in Mark's Gospel, for those of you visiting, we've been actually in Mark's Gospel since September of 22. Just so you know, uh, we've been punctuating it with different series, the spiritual gift series that we just concluded. But we're coming back to the last section. And and Mark wants this passage about this woman to serve as a portal into the rest of his Gospel. And so this morning, I don't really have three points for you. I know. What you're saying, you're saying, is this a dream? Like, like maybe it's a nightmare for some of you, like organization. Uh, but I am going to give you a framework, okay? I'm not giving you three points, but I am giving you a framework this morning. And it's not just a framework for today. It's a framework really for the rest of Mark. And it's this, enemies and lovers. This passage 
the passion, the Christ, 14 to 16 to Mark, enemies and lovers. And what we're going to see is there are going to be some enemies and lovers that we would expect. But you're going to be surprised, actually, about what this passage says about both enemies and lovers as well. Some things familiar, some things unexpected. So this morning, let's jump in here. We're going to start with, with enemies, and it seems appropriate that we begin with verse 1. And so it says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, if you were here for the Ash Wednesday service, thank you. It was our largest attended Ash Wednesday service ever, I believe. It was amazing, the energy in the room that night. But if you remember, Mike actually, Pastor Mike actually did a homily around verses 1 and 2, then verses 10 and 11. So I'm not here to recapitulate a sermon and to preach it again. But I do want to point out a couple of things because I realized as we come to the body of the text, verses 3 through 9, it won't make sense without understanding what's on the other side here. So in verse 1, you have the chief priests and religious leaders. Remember, if you've been with the Mark series, you know that for months now, every week it seems like you hear the same refrain over and over again. And they sought to kill him. And they sought for a way to kill him. And they sought to end his life. Well, now it's go time. It's time to make this happen. But they, rather than having the fear of God, noticed that they had the fear of man. And so they're like, how do we do this? Jerusalem's crowded right now. They all love him. How are we going to do this? Right? That's verse 1. So we see treachery on the one side of this passage. Now let's go to verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, we don't talk a lot about Judas. He's kind of like the Voldemort of the Bible, right? Some of you got that. Uh, uh, But we're going to mention him now here. Now, we know that he was like the treasurer, and he helped himself on occasion to the treasury. And there's some other verses. We also know that he was there in this room scolding this woman for the use of money. So there's a theme in the life of Judas. I want you to hold on to that. But that is not what I want you to key in on with me. It is right after this passage that Judas actually says it's time to betray Jesus. I want you to notice that. This passage, verses 3 through 9, what happens with this woman is the final nail in the coffin. And here's what I think happened for Judas. I think Judas said, it's over. My dream is done. The death of a dream for Judas. What was Judas' dream? Well, it was actually the same dream for all of them. (laughs) That he would become a a great military and political ruler who would overthrow the Romans. And it was our time. And Passover was this time where there there was a lot of energy and there was a threat of revolt. Rome came, actually. Pilate came into Jerusalem because of that threat every Every Passover... And he realized with this woman and what happens, the dream is dead. And he might as well cash it in. We're going to see that here in a couple weeks, how he cashes in. But I want you to hold on to that. So there's treachery on either side. But where we're going to spend the balance of our time is with this woman in this home. And so look with me in verses 3 through 5 to start with. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this perfume wasted like that? 
where this perfume could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. I want to show you a picture of an alabaster jar. Uh, These were common, by the way, very common during that era of time. And they ranged in different sizes. Some were very small, some were much larger like that. And they had an opening at the top. And, and, uh, and, and so this woman was carrying a, a small one in her hand that day. And I want you to just to really uh, enter into the text with me. I want you to put yourself, maybe you're one of the disciples as you envision this, or you're, you're somewhere in the room. I want you to picture yourself there. Now, what's, what's going on? Well, this is the home of Simon the leper. Now, clearly he's no longer a leper because this house is packed. Okay, so you don't do that around lepers. So clearly this is his past. It is now his sort of his nickname, as it were. There were so many Simons in those days that they had to have like a nickname or a last name. So this is Simon the leper. But he was a follower of Jesus. And so, so Jesus is reclining at table. So in other words, the scene has already been happening. The meal has already been happening. And suddenly a woman comes into the scene. Now, I want you to picture that. I want you to picture this woman coming through the door. Now, she's not sheepish, it turns out. She's not kind of poking her head in, you know, staying in the back. But what does the text tell us? This woman barges in and she makes a beeline for the center of attention. Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to the meaning of what this woman does here in a little bit. But I want you to hold that scene for a second. Now, I wonder, as you see this woman break the flask and to pour the whole contents, can you smell the room? It's radiant in the aroma of perfume. But this woman has done something. Suddenly, she's, she's burst in. And don't you know, this would have been a commotion. Like, she's disturbing the protocol, friends. This is what she's doing. She's disturbing how things... This would have been a room filled with men, by the way. She would have been the only woman in there. This is a room filled with men, and this woman has come into the room of men, and she is disturbing their protocol, the boys' club, as it were. Now, I want to ask you this morning, how do you feel when she does that? Have you ever been on Marta? Or maybe it's another subway line. <laughs> and so you're not, yeah, I know where you're going with this guy. And, and you're sitting there minding your own business. And suddenly someone just begins to sing at the top of their lungs, right? <laughs> or, or, yeah, they're out of their mind, right? And they're, they're talking to themselves or to someone who's invisible on the train, evidently. You know, you know what I'm talking about? How does it make you feel? How does it make you feel? It makes you uncomfortable. You feel embarrassed. I want to say something really important about this text. It says that he scolded her about the money issue. But mark my words. This is about more than that. This was about feeling embarrassed, ruffled, and undone. They are undone by this woman. And it makes them angry. 
This is the source of their indignation. Now, they, they pin it on a legitimate issue that we're going to come to in a second, but I want you to hold space for that right? just for a second. I want you to hold the fact that this woman has come into the room of men and she has disturbed them beyond belief with this dramatic act. I mean, imagine the drama in the room, what you're smelling, what you're seeing. This is overwhelming. And they are undone by this act. Maybe they're saying to themselves, I've never done that before. And and maybe that's where their their indignation is ultimately coming from. But I think it's more complex than simply looking at that verse and saying, oh, this is about money and the poor. And so I want want you to enter into the complexity of the scene with me. I want you to be there. And I want you to feel that indignation, you know. But what about this concern for the poor? What about what they say? Well, it's legitimate. Here's why. Because at Passover, there was a special collection that was taken up for the poor. Now, there was concern for the poor, as you know, for Jesus. I mean, he himself was poor. But there was concern for the poor at all times. And, but it, at Passover, there was a special collection taken up. So that is the context. That is the background for here. So 300 denarii, just so you know, is worth about forty dollars to $50,000 today. This was expensive. And... And so they are watching forty to fifty thousand dollars in an impoverished economy sprinkled down his his hair, his face, his beard. And it's a time of collection for the poor. And they say, How in the world could she do this? How dare she? In light of our needs looks like such an extravagant waste. I don't know how many of you watched the Super Bowl on Sunday. It was the most watched Super Bowl to date. And and there were, as you know, I, by the way, it's the only sporting event that I get up to go to the bathroom or to get food while the game's on, and I come back and rush in time for the commercials, right? It's the only, thing, the only time you ever do that, right? It's like, I can't get back in time for the commercials, right? Um, and I don't know if you saw it, but if you did see it, you know there were two commercials. Now, 30-second spots are $7 million for the Super Bowl. That probably doesn't even like compute for most of us in this room. $7 million for 30 seconds. Do the math on that per second. It's pretty amazing. All right? So 30 seconds, $7 million. And there's an organization called He Gets Us. Now, it's a not-for-profit that was established to, to, um, uh, to, to focus people on Jesus. And, and, and so they've been doing it for years now. I've even got one of their T-shirts now. You can do that. If you go to hegetsus.com, they will send a free T-shirt to you, just so you know, right? Uh, this is Jesus on it or something like that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But here's an organization. that did, So they, they placed two spots, $14 million. Now, here's what's fascinating about this organization. If you look at what people have said about He Gets Us, you see people on both the right, political right, and the political left who are ticked off at He he Gets Us. There's some people on the political right who look at it and they say, oh my gosh, it seems like he's always about social justice. Are these a bunch of social justice warriors? You know, that kind of ilk, that sort sort of thing like that. But what was fascinating was with these two commercials in particular were people on the left in their response to it. And I remember reading articles. Uh, the day after, and people over and over again said the exact same thing, with sometimes with viciousness, saying this money could have been given to the poor. This money could have been given to the poor. Now, I wonder if, as you think about that with me, what do you feel? $14 million. Now, I'm going to hold you in suspense. 
We're going to come back to that. What do we do with that? But I want you to see with me, what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? Look at verses 6 through 7. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, I told you at the outset that there, there's uh, two sets of, of, uh, of enemies here. And, and one is the obvious one. We saw that on both sides. We see the treachery. We see the enemies of Jesus there. And you might be saying, oh, you're about to say that it was the disciples in the room. It was those gathered in there. That must be the other set. No, not really, actually. What does Jesus say here? What does Jesus, he said, she's done a beautiful thing. You always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Here's what I think he's saying. Caring for the poor is a good thing. But when it becomes your everything, it becomes an enemy. And I want to say this to us 2,000 years later. Anything done that's good, but not in the name of Jesus, is an enemy. You and I this morning can be, can be motivated for different reasons. We've been talking about motivation, haven't we? We can be motivated by reasons other than the worship of Jesus. We can do an amazing good here in our city. We can join in hands, and we should join hands. We should link arms. We should do the good work that's obvious here. That Even Jesus says that you always have the poor with you. But I want us to be careful this morning that we don't make the mistake that they did that day. Any good thing done in anyone else's name for any other reason becomes an enemy. You've heard the phrase, the enemy the best is the good. Oh, amen to that. Jesus could have practically said that here. What is the best? What is the best? The best is bringing the salt and the flavor of the kingdom of God to earth in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And this woman gets that. This woman understands that in this moment, Jesus is the center of her everything. And so I want to ask you this question as we now turn our attention to lovers. What's motivating you this morning? Some of you are saying, man, I, I, don't, even, I don't even think about others. I, I'm, I, that's where I'm stuck right now. But it may be that some of you are saying, man, I, I, I am such a warrior for Jesus, or a warrior for good causes. And, and maybe as, I, as I, you hear my words this morning, you say to yourself, I don't know what's motivating me to do that. It may be making a name for myself. It may be that living for the accolades of this community that would say, oh, good on you for doing that. What is your motivation? What is it that you're ultimately pursuing? Where are you spending your money? And so, lovers, here's the other part of the framework. What about this woman? This woman is a lover. Verse 3, you know, it was to say she breaks the neck. Did you ever think about that? Like, like, why not just dump it out? Like, you know, like, here's what I would have thought. You know, like, here's how I do think, to be honest with you. I think, what's the bare minimum? How much? 
I'll just dump a little bit. Ah, it smells pretty good in this corner of the house. Uh, we're good. Jesus knows how much I love him. This woman breaks the flask. You know what she's doing there? She's saying, never again. I will never again use this. Thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars Now, I want you to think about this woman comes in by herself into a room full of men. You didn't do that without a husband. In other words, this woman doesn't have a security net. This woman is by herself. Who knows what happened? She's encountered Jesus sometime in the past. Some people think, well, maybe it was the brother of Lazarus. Uh, maybe it was the woman who's, who committed adultery and Jesus protects her. Maybe it happens again. We don't know this woman's identity. But what we do know is her heart. And we do know her adoration. We do know about her devotion. And that in a, in a spontaneous, almost impulsive way, she does this thing to Jesus. And she's overwhelmed by love. And it's costly. You see, this, this would have been probably a family heirloom. And, and because there's no social, social security, there's no Medicaid, there's no health care net for her in her future because she's alone, essentially. Do you know what this means? She's giving up all of her security. She's giving everything. Everything of worth and value that she had, she literally pours it out on Jesus in a spontaneous act. How do we understand that? The only way we can is that this woman was absolutely overwhelmed by love. This woman was not about doing something good that day. She wanted to worship Jesus. And maybe, again, maybe that's why the disciples are embarrassed. Because they've been with Jesus for three and a half years every day. And this woman rightly worships him. And they go the opposite direction. Scolding. Indignant. Dignity. That sort of thing right there. I can imagine the disciples saying, woman, what's going through your mind? And she would say, it's not about what's going through my mind. It's about what's going through my heart. And I've connected the two together, basically. Some of you know that two years ago we were on sabbatical, and that as part of that sabbatical, we spent five weeks in Italy. I'm going to tell you, that was an amazing time. My girls literally this week, after the Ash Wednesday service, we went to Surin of Thailand here next door. And literally, without being prompted, they started bringing up that time there. I mean, they still talk about it two years later, how much. It's like, yeah, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's going to stay with you for a lifetime. Awesome, great. But let me tell you, when we were in Rome, we went all over. But when we were in Rome, let me tell you what we didn't do. At no point do we say, you know what? I wonder what movie's showing. What great American Hollywood flick can we watch here in, in Rome? Or, and we also, we never said, you know what? I wonder where McDonald's is. Oh, Big Mac right now. Oh, how good that would taste. It doesn't taste good now in America. I'm just, saying, just putting, my, putting it out there right there. But when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. I mean, when we're in Rome, you see the Colosseum, you see the other great works of antiquity, went to Florence, of course, and enjoyed the amazing art of the Western world and just the beautiful pieces from the centuries ago. And when we went to Rome, we ate like the Romans. <laughs> I mean, we, it's the culinary capital of the world, one of the culinary capitals. And we enjoyed amazing food during that time there. See, when you're in Rome, you can only do what you can only do in Rome. And when this woman is with Jesus, she can only do 
what you do with Jesus, and that is to worship him. And so this is the reason for her everything, when in Rome. I can only do this because I only have Jesus now. And Jesus confirms that later on. It's, she won't have me. You won't have me for the rest of this time. And so true delight on her face, true joy, Weber's right, true joy fills her heart because she is placed in perfect alignment, as it were, the priority of Jesus over everything else, including her security, believe it or not. And so I, I think what happened for her is that when she saw Jesus, she looked into the face of one who had liberated her. Remember, Passover, we're told in verse 1. Passover is the next verse we're going to see next week, verse 12, is where it says, now Passover is here. And so what's surrounding this passage is Passover. Now what is Passover? Passover is the celebration of Exodus. It is the celebration for the Jewish community that because of the angel of death passing over their homes, because why? The blood of the lamb being placed upon their doorstep there above their doors because of the love of the Lamb. So when she is looking in the face of Jesus, she sees more than a rabbi. She sees the face of a lover. You see, Jesus is the second lover. Jesus is every much full of love for her. And it's a beautiful thing, Jesus says, what she does. Being overwhelmed by love. What, what happens when, when two lovers are in the room together? They find each other. <laughs> and we just got through celebrating Valentine's Day. And the cynic in me says, well, Hallmark created that holiday, you know, for, for celebration of, of love. And, you know, I know we all have different feelings about Valentine's Day. Some of us want it to go away. Others, like, can't get enough of it, that sort of thing like that. But regardless, we know this is true about love. It is that, that when you are in love, you will spend extravagantly. I have three daughters, teenage daughters. Boys spend extravagantly on them. I'm here to tell you. I'm like, did I ever really spend like that? Oh, maybe I did. Like, I mean, it's amazing the amount that they will spend. You know, but when you're in love, when you think you're in love at least, like, you will expend extravagantly. And this woman is, is spending extravagantly because she's in deepest form of love, which is the love of worship. To worship the one who has redeemed her, who has saved her. I think this is a gift of faith that God has given her, a prelude of what life is to look like in the kingdom of God on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Which leads here to the thing I want you to capture with me, for her, this is the fragrance of life. For everyone else, it's almost like the fragrance of death. This is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. This woman is smelling the fragrance of life. And what was that life? The life of Jesus Christ. Now, to close, listen to what he says now, verses 8 through 9. This is sort of his commentary, as it were, on what has just happened. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. Now, remember what I said about those ads he gets us. Remember, 
Remember what I said there that people were saying, that money could have been spent. Let me tell you, you know how much money was spent on the Super Bowl that night? Hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know what it was spent on? Ego. You know what most of those commercials, have you noticed what's happening in the, in the arc of the Super Bowls over the years? That more and more of the commercials are about celebrities. I mean, they get paid handsomely, and then they get the other accolades on top of that that comes to, to valuation of their persona. There's an actual valuation, believe it or not, on everyone's persona in Hollywood. There's an actual amount of money given to that, and it just went up because of the Super Bowl ads. Hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every Super Bowl to put on a pedestal of human beings, mere mortals in the universe. And so my response to $14 million being spent on Jesus Christ, how dare we complain? How dare we complain to say in our politically divided universe today, in a world where Jesus has been used and leveraged on both the left and the right for different visions, how dare we not have a time to spend just a little capital on him and, and to remove him from both the political left and to remove him from the political right and say instead we want to focus in a divided world on who is Jesus, the incarnation. He does get us. That's what I believe. And that's how I would respond. And Jesus says, it's a beautiful thing to focus on me for what has she done? She's prepared for my burial. What was that burial? That burial was the cross. It was the crucifixion. That's what basically verse 8 is about. But then notice in verse 9, she says, And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what is he saying? He says, I won't be stuck in the grave. The resurrection is coming. And the gospel is going to the utter ends of the earth. It is his proclamation that death shall not hold him. And so, you have me today. What do we do with this now? Here's where I close. We have Jesus with us always because he's in our hearts. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus with us now with adoration. Now we go to our city. We go to the homeless. We go to the disenfranchised. We go to the dispossessed. But not only then, we go to those who are impoverished in other ways, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, to each other as well. And we go and we say, I want to spend my everything on you. We give up our security. We give up the the hope for the American dream. Jesus didn't die for the American dream. He died for the joy set before him. You see, Robert Weber's right. Lent is about joy. It's about the joy of Jesus Christ for you and for me first. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, he endured the cross that we might be reconciled to him. He endured the cross. And so I, I want to ask you here, what, what do you want to spend your life savings on? And I'm not saying this morning that, that, that the point of that is to say, well, now you need to go sell your 401ks. Right? But that's not the point. The point is to have your hands open and say, Jesus this will not be my security. Nor will my time, nor will my talent be my security, along with treasure. But Jesus, I hold everything for you. And I say, do with it what you want, for I worship you first and foremost. That's the longing of my heart this year for our community.
is that we will be people who say, he gets us. And we want him to be had, to be gotten by others. So may we be those people who pour out lavishly and extravagantly love upon this world. Because Jesus has first done that for us. We hold him in our hearts. We say, come Lord Jesus, take the perfume, take it and spill it out for the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great and good reminder that the good is not enough. The good cause, the just cause, is not enough. That you must motivate us. You must be the source of our joy. You must be the source that cries and calls out for us to go and spend our time and our talent and our treasure on each other here at City Church, but also between the sunnies and outward beyond these walls to those who are both possessed and dispossessed. And, and so, Father, we pray, would you make us that church increasingly? Lord, but we remember your grace. We remember your kindness. Remember that you're kind-hearted to us, just as you were to those disciples who scolded the woman. You were kind-hearted to them, and you brought them back to you. And they went further up and further in with you, Jesus Christ. So would you do the same thing for us in the places where we're falling behind, so to speak, where, where we've become indifferent, we've become functional atheists, where we have our love for you has grown cold. Would you once again rekindle the flames of love, Holy Spirit, in us, that through us for the world might see us on fire for Jesus Christ, the whole world might know him. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.